Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On October 13th and 14th, Fidelity Investments Canada proudly hosted an in-person event for financial advisors featuring several Fidelity portfolio managers and subject matter experts. On today's Fidelity Connects podcast, we're bringing you one of these sessions, featuring a discussion between portfolio manager Mark Schmel and moderator Pat Bolland. Now for Canadian investors, Mark manages Fidelity Special Situations Fund, Canadian Growth Company, and Global Innovators. Mark shares his thoughts on today's markets and business cycle, and also provides an update on his funds. This includes where he is currently finding opportunities, which focus on the tales of the market and uncovering positive change in both Canada and abroad. Mark and Pat also field questions from the live audience. This podcast was recorded on October 13th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Okay, let's start off with, and let's do a bit of a recap about what's been happening in the stock market this year. Or actually, you can go back two years if you want. Yeah, it's been two years. Um, So... It has been a, a garbage year for just about everything. Um, it's been really tough for me. Uh, I would say that growth generally peaked almost 18 months ago. It peaked in about February of 2021 and has gone nowhere but down. And that has been no fun at all. Uh, this year is actually, surprisingly for me, it's been better than last year. And you're saying, how can it be better? You're down like 26% or something. But I'm sort of behaving with the market. And traditionally, my funds over 15 years, I always, I always tell people, I tend to go up more than the market and I tend to go down with the market. And guess what? I did it again this year, which is, is you know, annoying. I've done a lot of fancy things that you guys won't have ever seen. None of them have worked as well as I'd hoped, which is unfortunate for me and for you and everyone else who owns my funds. But I do feel as though it's one of those years where it's been very difficult to really do anything well. Very few strategies have really worked. You know, Jeff was talking about bonds. Like, nothing really works. I mean, the Fed's been jacking rates for months and months and months, and everything goes down. Those are very difficult markets. And so what we're all really waiting for in this room is, well, when does that stop? And I think that's an important variable to consider and to think about. And then how I frame it, and I, I did a podcast or something a little while ago, And I really think that you need to frame it in the context of the inflation story. And what drives inflation for me is energy. So I really pay attention to energy. And I think energy has peaked. And I think inflation has peaked. And I think rates are peaking now. And because of all of that, I think we're at the point where you can finally say to yourself, you know what? I can probably go back in there and start investing again. And I thought Jeff laid that out pretty well. He's looking at the bond market going, you know, there's, there's opportunity here. And I'm looking at the equity market and I'm saying there are pockets of opportunity now. And I think that the equity markets are in a couple of different places. One is growth. 
Growth has been in a bear market for 18 months and is down like 80%. I mean, all you have to do is look at the ARK Innovation Fund and like it's down a ton. Um, expectations have collapsed. Interest rates have gone up. Growth companies are firing everybody. Like, it's awful. Um, and it's going to get worse. The other part of the economy is, is less bad. You know, energy's still doing well. The consumer's hanging in. Yeah. So parts of the economy are okay, and parts of the economy are, like, clearly in a bear market. And I think you need to sort of think about, well, where do I want to invest? You know, the bond market looks like a pretty good place based on what I just listened to. Lots of opportunity there. And then when I think about where I'm investing right now, and I'm finding more opportunity now than I've found in the last two years. Um, there's a lot of really interesting, broken growth stocks out there that I think there's a lot of opportunity in. And that's the first time I've been able to say that in a while. I can remember back in January, I was pretty much as bearish as I've ever been. Mm. Um, I tried to play defense. I suck at defense. Every defensive stock I bought pretty much went down with the market. I actually sold so many really hot growth stocks so well and saved everyone in this room a lot of money. And then I plowed them into like, you know, tobacco and tobacco blew up. Um, so I thought I was smart. And I wasn't as smart as I had hoped. But at the same time, um, I'm not nearly as bearish as I was in January, especially now. And I do think there's lots of opportunity. I've had a lot of meetings with a lot of companies over the last couple of months. And it's interesting to listen to the tone change of management teams especially in growth land, where it was always growth to the sky. And now it's like, well, we fired 20% of our staff last week. And it's a real difference. And they're starting to actually mention the word profitability. Not all of them. And those that aren't, you don't want to own. But there's more opportunity than there used to be. And I don't think you're going to go back to that market where, you know, it's going up 25% every single year. Like, I don't see that. But I do see, I do see opportunity. Like, I haven't seen any long time it's not like innovation has gone away there's absolutely still innovation not. going on absolutely so was it something to do with the market and the, and the multiples mm. or the profitability or the yes. valuations yeah so i think that what people need to realize is what happened in 2020 and where the market went to the best way to say it is it probably should have never been that high and so using that as a baseline for where it should be is is incorrect and the market has corrected so much now that we've taken most of that away. And I think we're getting back to levels where you can say, okay, I can underwrite you know, some growth in this company at X percent over X number of years, where you couldn't have said that two years ago. So the market became massively overbought, massively stimulated by you know, really low rates. We've taken all of that away. And if you're in the camp like I am, where I think inflation has peaked, that, that is over, right? So we have now repriced assets to the level where they should be, more or less. And now the risk is, what damage happens to the economy, right? Mm -hmm. What happens to earnings? What happens to cash flow? We don't know that number yet. Um, but I would say, argue in some sectors, you don't even need to know what that is anymore to make money. Some of the stocks have fallen so much that if you buy them today and you wait two years and even just ignore the recession that's coming down the pipe, you're going to make money in them. And so those are, those are good opportunities for me. So for, for me, it was like the market got massively overbought. We had taken that all away. And now the question is, you know, back to fundamentals. What do I want to own? Where do I want to be? And what are the best opportunities in the marketplace? And that's, you know, back to stock picking. Okay. You've described your investment style as a bell curve where you exist on the ends, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the tails, mm -hmm. I think is the word you've used. Yep. Uh, wh which tail 
are you living in right now, mm. and which tale do you see yourself living in, and how do you handle that transition? I'm actually in transition as we speak. Uh, I did buy a lot of defense and sold a lot of really aggressive tech early in the year. Thank goodness. Uh, some of those sales were amazing, and um, I'm very happy that I, I managed to pull that off. Um, I'm now in the process of selling defense and buying offense. And I likened it to someone today that I'm, I'm trying to make the portfolio worse because I'm buying things that go are going down like every day. And I want to do that. And I want to do that in selective parts of the portfolio to try and add alpha in the future. And so I'm selling safe things to buy less safe things. And it's really difficult to do that because you look at your portfolio and go, oh, I really like this company. It's working great. Why am I selling it to buy this piece of junk? And the reason is that piece of junk in the future is going to be what you want to own. So I'm, I'm actively making my fund worse as I sit here today. It is getting less defensive and more offensive. And depending on your view of the world, maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing. So my tail shift is going from defense to offense. And then within that, I am finding, like I said, a lot of what I call the really broken growth stocks that still have a really good product and the management team is addressing what's going wrong. And there's a lot of them. And there's a long list. And many of them I haven't owned forever. Uh, so I, I find myself a new owner of a lot of interesting stocks. Many of them are brand name companies that you all know. And they're just really cheap. They screen really cheap to me. So I'm buying that and I'm buying, you know, economically sensitive, but maybe somewhat low quality names that I think are going to, to work really well in the next 12 to 18 months. So yeah, defense to offense, but it's a slow shift. Because none of us know how this is going to work, and none of us know the speed at which it's going to happen. And I think this market has really punished people for being too aggressive too quickly in a lot of different places. And so I'm trying not to do that. I'm trying to sort of go slowly and, and tip my toes into it. And I don't think I need to rush. And I don't think you're going to get that bell ringing moment where it's like, this is the bottom. And it's funny. Everyone's waiting for a capitulation trade, you know. We're going to get this capitulation and there's lots of pain and it's you know, fire and brimstone. I don't, I don't think we get that, honestly. I think we kind of grind. And I think we need to be slowly transitioning for the grind. A lot of us have been trained by the two recessions we've had, which was 08 and then 02. And in both cases, the market went down 50%. And we can all say, we all look at our screens and we can look at, oh, 50% is like 3,000 or something on the S&P. And everyone has circled this number, right? All of us. Everybody in this room, everybody's a professional, everybody I talk to, we've all circled the same number. That's where it's got to go to because that's where it went to in the last two recessions. This recession is not the same. Like, we're hitting this recession with incredible economic growth. The consumer's in good shape. There's no financial crisis. You could argue there was a bubble in tech, but not all of tech. You know, parts of tech like Zoom and Peloton, yeah. But lots of other parts of tech are actually real companies. So there's no bubble bursting. There's no financial crisis. It's not going to be the same type of cycle that we had in those two previous recessions. And everybody who's investing today, more or less, that's their time horizon. So nobody remembers the 1992-93 recessions or what happened. And in a lot of those, the markets didn't go down 50%, mm. right? What are we down, 27, 28? I don't know. We're down a lot. So I think you have to be careful to believe that the market's going to be worse from here. And I think that there is opportunity. And I'm you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult to buy. I don't know about you guys, but it's really hard to buy a stock that's down 80%. It's going down 5% a day. Like, it is gut-wrenching to try and do that. And because it's so difficult, it probably means it's the right thing to do. 
And if it's really easy to hold on to some defensive utility or something, as it doesn't go down or sitting in cash, if it's easy to do, you shouldn't be doing that either. Our job is to do the thing that's difficult to do. And so right now, the difficult thing to do is to buy risk and sell defense, not the other way around. Okay, I, I want to walk through that a little bit because what, what you're describing is catching a falling knife mm -hmm. to a degree. Mm -hmm. But this, as you point Lots out, isn't like the dot-com bubble Absolutely where not. companies disappeared, the company still exists. Yes. So do you take the 20 defensive stocks and buy 200 growth stocks, but just a little bit of each, mm -hmm. and see which one sticks? That's sort of what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm buying a basket. Uh, now, there are certain stocks that I really like. There's like 10 stocks that I think are all going to double in the next two or three years, and I cannot tell you what they are. I mean, I'd get so much trouble, and I'd be wrong on most of them anyway, so it doesn't matter. But, um, but there's like a, a bunch of like big fat pitches that I'm trying to swing at, and then there's a whole bunch of little ones that you don't know. So you buy, I'm buying a basket, and, and you know, when you run a lot of money, you, you got to kind of spread it around a little bit more. So that's, there's definitely a basket approach. To what I'm yeah, well, it's interesting. You haven't named names in the past, but you have talked about sectors in the past. Mm -hmm. Like software as a service was one mm -hmm. that you and I had a discussion about. Sold that one well. Right. Whew. What a nightmare. <laughs> um, yeah, so software as a service is a, is a sector that you, I think you can start nibbling away at that sector. I don't think there's any particular winner. They're all still very expensive. You know, you, you could be nibbling away at like semiconductors, I think. Incredibly economically sensitive. Very different business than the last two cycles. They're already down 60 to 70%. They've stopped going down on bad news, more or less. So, like, there are parts of the market where I think that you can take economic risk and not feel too bad about it. There are also parts of the market that are showing lots of strength. I mean, if you, energy is very strong right now. And it's hard to say, oh, I should go sell all my energy stocks because the fundamentals look really, really great for all the reasons they already outlined. But, you know, is that going to be the best sector from here? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I would classify that as like in the sort of defensive sector. I mean, it's up 50% this year. The oh. biggest relative move in the history, I believe, of energy. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's enormous. It's like 100% relative. It's up 50. The rest of the market's down 30. So maybe energy's had its trade. I don't know. There's a lot of these things that we think about as we, we build these portfolios and try and come up with the best, you know, look forward. You've always talked about being a good seller, and you mentioned it earlier today here. When you do have these 200 stocks that are over here, mm -hmm. um, and, and you saved people a lot of money. I did. Way down. They don't know that. I'd love to Still know. Still lost 30%. I know, but I'd love to know what motivated those sales. Was it throwing in the towel, or was it, let's just wait and set this out? Or No, it was a lot of complacency. Like, some of the stuff that I sold in January, like, I, I, owned, I owned Facebook, and they missed the quarter, and I sold every single share. It was just so obviously going lower. And, you know, you think, well, I just lost 30%. Great. I feel like an idiot. And, uh, but the stock's down 80% or something from there. Like, it's down so much more. Most of growth software has collapsed, right? Just collapsed. You know, I was selling growth software in January aggressively. Like, you could see it coming. And uh, people were just too slow to react. And it's really difficult to sell stocks that are down. Like, a lot of these growth software names have been correcting all year last year, so they were already down 30%. And you're like, oh, they're down 30%. I'm going to keep my, I don't know, pick one. And um, they've gone down like another 70% from there. So you've got to, you have to be ruthless. And that's one thing I am very good at is selling losers and getting out of these things. And it saves, saves my bacon more often than not. I would look like ARC. I kind of like to think about it. And I've said this to everyone before, and they probably heard me. It's like, I always ride it over a cliff, 
And I rode it off over the cliff again. <laughs> it happens every time. The object, though, is you ride it over the cliff and then you step off, and then it just keeps going down. And so I think a really good way to look at that is the person who didn't step off, is a good example, is Art. We look exactly the same. We both went up the same. And she kept going down, and I stepped off the ride. And um, that's how you build long-term track records. So I'm not saying I feel great that I lost you all this money, and I, I don't. But the hope, hope is that the next time the market starts to rally, then, you know, away we go again. And we, we just stay on the ride. So selling quickly and aggressively is really, really important. And you have to, it's a, it's a learned skill. You sound like a Californian. It's like surfing. You know, you get halfway down, you don't go all the way down to the bottom. Yeah, those guys are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You and I have talked in the past about how markets can work, talking about surfing, can go in waves. Mm -hmm. And there was a really good stock market for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And yet you say this is a good time to start looking at the stock market. Is it? Mm -hmm. Like, are we, could we have another 15 years of flat S&P? I don't think you're going to have the same bull market that you had over the last 10 years. I don't. I just don't see that. And the constituents of the market are changing. Leadership seems to be changing. Resources seem to be working better. Scarcity is a sort of a theme, but I don't know if I believe it or not. But at the same point, a lot of the innovation that people invested in is still there. And it got mispriced, but it's still there. I mean, the things that we are doing, the, the AI and all the fancy buzzwords, they're all still there. And you can still invest against those dynamic themes. It's not as if you should stop. It's just that they became mispriced. And I don't know that, you know, necessarily running away from them forever is the right thing. I can remember the dot-com bus, right? Like, you never wanted to own Webvan again or Pets.com. They all went to zero. But, you know, some of these, these really growthy names, you're going to want to own. They're going to be around for 10 years, and their business is going to triple from here simply because those themes are not going away. Like, like look at a firm like Tesla, for example. They're going to grow probably for the next 10 years because they make, you know, the best electric car and they have the most batteries and they got all these barriers to entry that they built and it's just a machine. It's not going to stop. People aren't going to stop buying electric cars. Like, that's a theme that you can look at and you go, you know, it's just going to keep working. What do we pay for that? Well, that's what the markets are arguing about right now with, you know, interest rates going up and down and sideways and left and right and... You know, that's, that's the other part of the job. But, you know, fundamentals in a lot of these companies aren't changing. We're still going to use tons of software. We're still going to use tons of cloud. You know, biotech's still going to be cool and disappoint at the same time. I mean, all these things are still going to be the same. Nothing has changed in the investment, investment context of the world. It's just the price we pay has changed. And, you know, the fact that we might have a recession in the next 12 months, well, we will have a recession. Is, is a short-term speed bump, but I really think that the, um, the pricing dynamic with interest rates has changed, and we've done the change. And I'm, I'm with Jeff on it. I think we, we're, we're there. Now, I could be wrong if oil goes to like 200 or for some reason. But honestly, how is that going to happen, right? We had a goddamn war, right? And he's blowing up the pipelines in Europe. I mean, does it get any worse? I, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, question from the app. Are you interested in fintech? Do you think that they still have the same growth momentum like five years ago? So I think fintech is in a process of um, train wreckage. There, I, there were like 200 or 400 companies. There's so many fintech companies. They were all making money. They were all growing to the sky. Fintech is an area that reminds me of dot-com. Like there's just a lot of companies who have a lot of capital, and they're all competing with each other for the same slice. So I think fintech remains uninvestable. I would not necessarily want to go there. 
I think there are other parts of the market where they're more consolidated, better businesses that you can own. FinTech is not one of them. So no, I'm generally avoiding that space. Okay. Are there any opportunities in Canada? So Canada's been the best market in the world. So the, the clear answer is yes. Energy and resources, if this trade continues, is great for Canada. We have great resources. We have great resource companies. There's a lot of really good companies in Canada. I would argue that many of them are really, really expensive at the moment relative to the rest of the world. So like, I don't know, pick a stock like Dollarama. Dollarama is a great company. It's really, really expensive. It's more expensive than like almost anything but Costco. So, you know, there's some good companies. They, in Canada, they tend to be very expensive because they're so few relative to others. Um, and they're very well known. It's very easy to pick out the best companies in Canada. The question might be, are there any emerging growth companies in Canada? And I would argue that that's going to be tough for a while because the funding markets have dried up. So I don't think you're going to see any Shopify's anytime soon out of Canada. It's just the funding, there's just no funding. Um, and I know from my privates, it's like nobody's writing checks for anybody right now. And that is going to be a headwind for that entire space. Um, in the States, they're still writing checks, but in the Canadian market, it's, it's drying up a little bit. So I think that emerging growth in Canada is going to struggle. I think that the companies that already are around are going to do just fine. And yeah, there's, there's lots of opportunity in Canada right now, mostly in resources, I'm finding. With, uh, you talked about Tesla, with rapid uh, adoption of EVs, are you interested in battery makers? Uh, not, not really. Um, Tesla makes their own batteries already. I think that, you know, it's funny, ver vertical integration has become the new dominant strategy. And no one here is probably even remembering that vertical integration was what we were all taught in business school. It's the worst thing ever. Never be vertically integrated. But if you look at all the companies that are succeeding in today's marketplace, they're mostly vertical integrated. Like Apple is vertically integrated. Tesla is vertically integrated. Um, they control the entire supply chain. And that's been really great in the supply chain nightmare we've experienced. And maybe we continue to have that as a problem. So I now start looking for companies that are vertically integrated. And I was told in business school never to do that. Um, you always want. Why, why would they say that? Oh, because it was um, you weren't efficient because you could use this huge supply chain and all the millions of suppliers around the world, and they would innovate faster. And Dell was the classic. You know, all we do is assemble boxes made from like a million different people. Yeah. But in this new world of scarcity and distribution issues and technological advantage, vertical integration has been great for Apple. Like they dominate because they're vertically integrated. They control the entire stack, and more and more companies are doing it. Same with Tesla. They're going to dominate because they control their entire techno technology stack, like soup to nuts. So it's just a different world. I, I think part of the question on uh, the batteries is you correctly predicted that Tesla wouldn't have the world to itself in EVs. Mm -hmm. And in, the big manufacturers are moving in there yeah. very quickly. Is Tesla there driven the new Hummer, that electric Hummer is crazy. Even the Silverado looks good. I, yeah. I was just like, that, they're, they're great. They're, they're all going to go electric. But, but is there a way you can make money off that? Well, you still end up with this like really boring automaker that doesn't have a business model that's any different. And they still have all these integrated, you know, ICE engines and they got this weird mix. And Tesla's just selling electric cars. Tesla's going to beat numbers for the next like forever. It doesn't make the stock a buy necessarily. You can argue about what it's worth and what it's not worth. But the fundamentals aren't going to change. You're going to sell a lot of cars. Hmm. Uh, what is the next disruptive theme in technology or anything for that matter? I added that in that you are closely watching? Oh, right now it's like how to fire people faster. Um, <laughs> so Outplacement, there you go. Outplacement. Uh, 
I, I still really like metaverse stuff, although not what Facebook's doing. I still like um, personalized medicine and biotech. I think that's going to be a really big thing, especially all the new technology coming down the pipe for um, testing, as, you know, whether it works or not. I think that's going to be really great. Um, if you can test for cancer with blood, blood tests beforehand, change the world. So there's some really good stuff going on in, in, in and around healthcare now that COVID's over and they get back to work. I think that, you know, the greening of the world is maybe not innovative but necessary. And I think there's lots of places to invest in against that theme. And I'm like a big proponent of nuclear. I think nuclear is, is the only way forward. Um, so there's a lot of big things out there that all don't necessarily fit like the theme of disruption and new technologies. Bitcoin and, you know, that kind of stuff has yet to show us that there's actually a product that anyone wants to buy. So... I don't know if that's going to turn into anything or not. Software continues to dominate the world. Software will remain the dominant force for disruption for our lifetimes. Um, you can just do so much with it. Now we've got no code, low code. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff going on. And, and if you want to solve the inflation problem, software is the way to do it. Better software is the way to do it. So there, there's, there's a lot of things. I wouldn't say there's a dominant theme. You know, It used to be we could come out here and we'd say AI is going to change the world because you know, we do all this stuff. It is going to change the world, but slowly. Um, and I would say that there's no like big bomb innovation style that's going to dominate it. No, but is that stuff embedded already? So, for instance, you no. brought up biomedical testing. No. That's embedded in the pharmaceuticals, isn't it? No, 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 no. So, like, there's this one company called Garden, which I don't own. They're doing this blood test, which hasn't been approved yet. They got a 13,000-person trial to see if they can find cancer, like pre-screen cancer with a blood test, right? right, rather than doing some invasive procedure. Um, there's a bunch of companies doing that. So if you can find some of these tests that work at, the, at a you know, biochemical level, you can then build practices around it and personalize the medicine attack for all these different diseases. So that there's, a lot that can, there's a lot of innovation that can happen in healthcare because it's not a very innovative space that I think is on its way, but it's not prime time. And you see companies like Amazon investing in the space. They bought one medical which does, you know, appointment. I'm a member of One Medical. It's a great service. There's lots of stuff going on, but there's nothing dominating yet. Value-based care in the States. There's no easy way to say it, but there's a lot of change occurring, but there's no, like, force. Like, I can say, oh, we need to invest against this. But there's a word I haven't heard you say in a long time, change. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's always change. Uh, I think for a while people forgot that change has a price. And it was like, oh, it's getting better. And I did the same. It was great. Everything has a price. And we've all learned that over the last two years. But no, things continue to change. And I would argue that lots of things are changing for the worse, too. I mean, this is a tough, tough world we're in right now with wars and conflict and crazy politics and scarcity and global warming. I mean, it's not great, but there, there will be solutions. And so the point is to try and invest against those solutions with the best ideas so we can solve those problems by investing against them. That's what I try and do. Is climate change an investable? Absolutely. Yeah. So you, what do you invest in? You invest in the companies that are trying to mitigate that. I, have, I still have a lot of climate change stocks. And you know, I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there because it's such a long cycle, right? And most of what you're going to see is, is carbon mitigation. And a lot of that is at the utility level. And utilities are regulated and they're going to spend a ton of money to try and fix that, and governments are going to make them do that. And whenever you have a utility customer, it's a really great business because the money's always there. 
And so if you can invest in the companies that are legitimately changing those utilities from not green to green, I think you can do very well for very long periods of time. And I own a whole bunch of companies that are leveraged that. Uh, you talked about being quick to sell. How will you decide when to sell a potential loser? Do you have a hard stop in mind? I never have price targets. Don't have price targets. You'll just get yourself in trouble. But I do have levels. So whenever stocks fall, let's say 20% or so from where I bought them, I always take a hard look at it because you know 20% is the volatility in the market. Anything beyond that is, wait, you made a mistake, right? I bought this. I thought X was going to happen. Didn't happen. Something's wrong. And then you reevaluate. And if you, when you reevaluate, you go, yeah, you know what? I made a mistake. You sell the whole thing. And so you, you have to be aggressive in your sales. The other thing I think about, too, is often the, your psyche tells you that this stock is wrong. So if I come in in the morning and I'm staring at my screen and I look at one stock every day, I got to sell it. That's another rule I have. It's like, if I'm thinking about that stock every day, it's time to sell it. Um, and that, that has worked really great. Um, I wish I could bottle that for people because that's like almost 100% hit rate, that one. But, you know, you just got to be very aggressive and monitor your entire portfolio and make sure you don't have a lot of weeds. You know, you have a lot of stocks and it's easy to forget that you have stock XYZ in there. Why did I buy this originally? I've owned it for four years. Do I still want to own it? So you have to continually sort of garden Right? So there's lots of gardening. Is the stock still the same story? Is there a better story somewhere else? There's lots of reasons to sell names. And I always laugh when people say I run a 20% turnover fund. Like, I couldn't find anything I want to own that long, ever. <laughs> I mean, pick out a chart. I mean, other than a railroad that's worked for 20 years, nothing, nothing works. So, yeah, I, I, I move it around. I assume I'm hearing that you'll see more turnover in the future, too? No, I'm very consistent. My style has been about 200% a year every year for 15 years. Well, I mean, it's, that's just what the style generates. Uh, are you interested in cybersecurity? Mm -mm. Generally speaking, it's another, it's kind of like fintech. Everyone and their brother has a great box that keeps viruses and things away. Uh, it's a very hard group to dominate for very long. There's always some new, usually Israeli company that, you know, has got the latest, greatest thing, and then they dominate for 18 months, and then there's some new one. So in general, I find it a very difficult space to buy and find anything I want to own. Oh, here's an interesting one. I was going to get around to this. I didn't know whether you want to talk about these these days. Are there more opportunities right now? Yes. Private companies. Yes. But before we talk about right now, mm -hmm. let's do a recap on your private companies over the last year. They're awful. I don't know how they work. How do they work for valuation? Right? They're awful. They're all gone to zero. Oh. Um, we, we write. We, Did it? It's awful. Uh, we, we write them down. But you can't month. sell them, can you? No, but we, we mark them. So you can see. Oh. Um, so we mark them every single month to whatever we feel like they should be. And sometimes we mark them too low, and sometimes we don't mark them fast enough. In general, we mark them every month. And you'll see it in the press, right? It'll always say something like, you know, Fidelity marked down SpaceX 50% last month. It always is in the news. Um, so that's what we do with my private portfolio. And it's, it's been terrible. I've got about four or five privates that are doing really well, and then I got a whole bunch that are just not. And, um, you know, it's, it's the function of the times we were investing in. But the private opportunities that are available today are great because these companies have no alternative. We're the only game in town. There's like 10 people still investing. And there's still lots of great technology out there that you can invest in. So it's funny. I'm, I'm in San Francisco. I've got an entire private team now that is actually based out there. And like, for example, next Wednesday, we're having breakfast with Bike Dance. And right near my house, I picked a, picked a restaurant. It was right because of my favorite breakfast place. 
So we're going to go have breakfast with ByteDance, which is a private company. Right. Um, what, what do they do? I don't TikTok. Oh, TikTok. You might have heard of TikTok. Okay. Yeah, ByteDance is TikTok. So, you know, so that's an example of the, um, uh, the type of access that we can get and the opportunities are out there now. Maybe not so much two years ago. But happily for everybody in this room, we've already written everything down already, so it's already in the fund price. So anything that goes gets better from here is gravy for all of us here. It's going to show up in the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Good. Uh, do you have concerns that we, I assume the investment world, are becoming less open to globalization? That's an interesting question. I don't know. Maybe. Probably. I don't think globalization is the force it was for the last 10 years, which is why you can make the case for increased inflation over time. You know, the whole get out of China supply chain mess, I think, is, is real. And, you know, bringing back manufacturing to North America is also real. But it's also a function of the fact that we have the cheapest energy on the planet, best labor markets. Um, so there's, there's some puts and takes. Uh, you and I, when we first started talking years ago, you described your process as mm -hmm. turning over stones. Mm -hmm. So now describe, and finding gems underneath, I guess. Um, describe your process now. The same. My process hasn't changed at all. From day one to day now, it hasn't changed. I've gotten better at it, which is a good thing, because I used to run a million dollars, and now I run a lot more. But it's exactly the same process. Turning over lots of rocks. I'm a very bad buyer of companies. I'm a very good seller. So this is why I buy turnover. I tend to find a company and go, that's a great idea, and I buy it. And I do more work on it. Maybe I buy more. But maybe I say, you know what? That was a mistake. I blow it out. So that's one of the reasons I have a lot of turnovers. I'm, I'm always looking at stocks, and I buy them, and I go, how's this one feel? Do I like the way this one is? Is this working? Is this not working? So and the only way you can do that is by meeting a lot of companies and continuously doing the work. And that's the nice thing about being at Fidelity is we have all these analysts all over the place. They're constantly surfacing ideas. We do meetings. I mean, my meeting calendar is nuts. It's probably like 50 or 60 meetings a day. I don't do them all, but that's like how many companies we're seeing. So that just flow of information and a flow of ideas and, and stylistically the way I'm kind of an omnivore and I just kind of buy everything. And then I just, I, I piece stuff out quickly. And it's sort of like, you know, like, European architecture is so much nicer than North America. It's because they've had like 2,000 years to tear down all the crappy buildings, but they keep the good ones. That's sort of my portfolio. Is I, I keep blowing out the really crappy companies and I keep the good ones. And like over time, this usually emerges as a good thing. Now, it hasn't worked for the last two years. And it's no question, my performance has been awful, um, but my style hasn't changed. And styles don't go out of favor forever. And eventually, Tearing down the bad buildings and only owning the good ones is going to work again. So hopefully that's soon. Is it uh, so? If your process hasn't changed, and you said you started off with a million dollars, I'm sure you're exaggerating, but same. No, thing. I did. Really? Mm -hmm. You've got a lot more now. Put mm -hmm. it that way. Does that make it a lot harder, especially when you're looking at private companies? Because Fidelity walks in, you do the whole deal. So it does make it much harder. But shockingly, not as hard as I would have thought. If you'd have told me. 10 years ago, I would have this much money to push around the markets. I would say it's impossible. It hasn't been. No, it hasn't been. My, my poor performance is not a function of the asset size at all. It's just a function of having owned too many of the wrong stocks at the wrong time. Hmm. But no, I'm still pretty nimble. Okay. I want you to look out mm -hmm. you know, 10, 20 years down the road and not worry about this little nuance in the market. What do you see as the major theme? that will unfold. His was demographics. Oh, that's a good question. I think climate change is a huge one. 
I think that's a big one that's going to dominate so much of what we do for the next 10 years. It's a big problem. I mean, look at the hurricane that just wiped out Florida. You're going to see more of those, and it's going to, it's going to be a big one. I think increased conflict as well. So this globalization question that came up, I think that it is, it is going to be a problem, and it's going to continue to be a problem. We are in a world of more conflict, and I don't know how to get out of that. There's more conflict everywhere. I don't know whether that's a function of social media or just a social of, I don't know what it is a function of, not smart enough. But um, so we have more conflict in the world. We have climate change, which is a problem. In general, the world is just, it's a more difficult, hostile place than it has been in the past. And I, I think that's going to have an impact on everybody's returns. And I think it's going to be more difficult for, you know, folks to make tons and tons of money like they have maybe over the last 10 years. So it's going to be, it's going to be tougher. It's going to be more of a grind. But does that make it a stock picker's market then? Oh, well, yeah, we always, always, it's a stock picker's market because we're fidelity. <laughs> That's <laughs> our pitch. I don't think I've ever been up here and not said it's not a stock picker's market. Um, <laughs> I think you need to be more nimble. I think that, uh, and, you know, for years, we just, people just buy the index. I own some index funds, like the S&P 500 has been a great index. But I think you need to be more nimble, and I think we could be in a more choppy, sideways-ish market. And I think that active management is going to be necessary and it's going to be hard. So I think it's, it's not going to be the easiest types of markets to navigate for everybody. Paint a picture for me in the markets over the next three years, though. You know, you say this is the peak of interest rates, the peak of think uh, so. uh, those kinds of things. Will the market rally off that? I think so. And how long might it last? And Probably last until we realize how bad the recession is. So for me, my playbook is we, we hit this point where we say, okay, the multiples have kind of corrected to where they need to be. Rates are sort of where they need to be, sort of. They probably have to go up a little bit more. Inflation's peaked. But then you have to worry about the economic impact. And then no one in this room knows what the economy is going to look like over the next 12. I certainly don't. Or how bad it's going to be or where it's going to be bad. Or even if it is going to be bad, who knows? But I think that's the next question we have to answer is what's the economy look like in a you know, a five to six percent interest rate world. Nobody knows the answer. You know, real estate's going to suck, um, and it's just starting to roll over. Like it's just starting to go. So there are sectors that are going to really get hammered, and then the question is, do the other parts of the market hold up? And I don't know. That's very complicated. But yeah, so we ha- I think we have a bit of a rally, relief rally, mm. and then we get to the oh my god, the economy's slowing down. So I think the next couple of years is a bit of a roller coaster. Would you characterize, you say there's opportunities, would you characterize yourself as bullish? I would say yes, as of like a week ago. So yeah, I'm more bullish. What happened in the last week? (laughs) Markets are finally getting to the levels where it's like, this this doesn't make sense in my framework of investing. But I would certainly not uh, back up the truck, you know, put all your money in the market. No, I'm not there yet. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, what would you say, structurally bullish now? Hmm. What about the, you were bullish in the spring on utilities. Obviously, that's the defensive side of things. It worked you great. Rolled, have you rolled all that out? I can't, I can't tell you that. Oh, go. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. Do you have anything left on the, on the defensive side? I still have defensive stocks, yeah. Yeah. I've been selling defense to buy offense. So is that a place to park money then? Is that effectively? It was, yeah. yeah that was the whole idea. I was pretty worried about the market. I parked money there. Good. Mm-hmm. Any last comments? We've only got a minute. No, other than I, it's been a really painful 18 months for me, stylistically as well. Um, this year has been much better than last year, which is interesting because I'm down like 25 or 30 for some huge number. I feel better about it, weirdly. I think that 
I think that it's, we can finally start getting constructive on the market. I believe that there, there's really good opportunity out there now. Where there's value appearing in pockets of the market where there hasn't been for years. And I think the worst is really behind us in terms of the big drawdown that we've seen, I think. Doesn't mean we can't go lower, but um, I do think it's time to start adding risk to the portfolio. Mark, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.